Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, President Robert Mugabe appoints Emerson Mnangagwa as his deputy and Cameroon police quash planned protests against new anti-terror law. In economics, the world faces the prospect of massive job losses and in sports news, International Olympic Committee grants Kosovo full membership. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. New Zimbabwean Vice President Emerson Mnangagwe's secretary is in a critical condition in a Harare hospital after cyanide was reportedly sprayed into his office. President Robert Mugabe made the announcement saying it was a clear attempt on the new Zimbabwe Vice President's life. Mnangagwa was earlier named Vice President. The appointment came a few days after Vice President Joyce Mujuru was sacked for allegedly plotting to oust Mugabe. Two female suicide bombers have killed at least four people at a busy market in northern Nigeria's largest city, Kanu. At least seven others were injured. This less than two weeks after an attack at the city's central mosque, Boko Haram has been accused of deploying a wave of female bombers in recent months, including in Kanu, and blame for the latest violence will likely fall on the Islamist insurgents. Judges at the International Criminal Court have ruled that Libya failed to comply with a request to hand over the son of Muammar Gaddafi for prosecution for alleged crimes against humanity. The ICC has now referred the matter to the UN Security Council. The council could also impose new sanctions on the Libyan government. The country has split into two governments, one elected and the other backed by Islamists. The militia holding Sayyaf al-Islam in the western town of Zintan refuses to surrender him. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has noted the recent announcement of elections in Lesotho to be held in February next year and welcomed progress achieved in efforts to uphold democratic principles and the restoration of political stability and security in the country. Show and Rice Peace reports. Ban Ki-moon also encouraged all Basutu leaders to comply with the Maseru Facilitation Declaration crafted by Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa under the auspices of SADC. The UN chief also called for the kingdom's leadership to work together in a spirit of compromise to ensure an environment conducive to peaceful and credible elections. He also commended the leadership shown by SADC in facilitating the way forward and reaffirmed the UN's commitment to support efforts of the government and people of Lesotho in consolidating peace. 
And finally, a Chadian rebel leader and former official of the Central African Republic has been captured. The UN Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in the Central African Republic, MINUSCA, says Mohammed Abdul Kader was detained by its forces on Monday. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric. The rebel was on the CAR authorities' arrest list since May of this year. And this is the latest in a series of actions taken by the mission using its urgent temporary measures mandate to perform basic police function in support of CAR's national authorities' fight against impunity. Recent major arrests include anti-Balaka leader called Chocolate and John American. Following the arrest of the latter in Bombay, 88 of his fighters have also surrendered. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa, rise and shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe appointed Justice Minister Emerson Mnangangwa as his new deputy on Wednesday, making the hardliner known as the Crocodile the most likely successor to Africa's oldest head of state. Mnangangwa takes over as deputy president in the ruling ZANU-PF party and for the country in a move that comes a day after 90-year-old Mugabe fired former deputy Joyce Mujuru. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. And uh, there are two vice presidents, one of whom will be drawn from a former Rapu and the other naturally from ZANU. From ZANU side is Emerson Munangab. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has finally announced his new deputies barely 24 hours after sacking his estranged former Vice President Joyce Mujuru. Emerson Mnangagwa is now the first Vice President with Pekezela Mpoko, the second Vice President Mugabe announced. Mugabe said the post of the National Chairman, which was held by Ambassador Simon Kayamoyo, a former PF Zapukada, would now be on a rotational basis between the two deputies. Essentially, the vice presidents will become more powerful as compared to the current scenario. Mugabe made the announcement Wednesday at the party's headquarters soon after an emergency central committee meeting in Harare. We are reducing that top heaviness. We will be having the president, the vice president by two vice-presidents. The two vice-presidents have no real big function except that they are my deputies. I can give them work to do. Previously, then we introduced the chairmanship. But we feel that it's not necessary if you have the vice presidents, 
they can do the chairmanship. They can become chairman, rotating the one become chairman. This was after the country's president had announced a 23-member Politburo. There were no surprises to the list made by Mugabe's. It simply buttressed beliefs by Zimbabweans that Joyce Mujuru was now being attacked to pave way for Mnangagwa. Mnangagwa, a liberation war fighter, is a close ally to Robert Mugabe from the period of the liberation struggle, but failed to make it to the presidium in 2004, paving way for a lady, Joyce Mujuru. Party sources say Mujuru was made the vice president then because of the late kingmaker, retired General Solomon Mujuru. Mujuru is one of the few in the party who could stand up against Robert Mugabe in an event of disagreements. Solomon Mujuru later died in a mysterious farmhouse in Feno at his Beatrice farm in 2011, exposing his wife, Joyce Mujuru. Insiders ESA Mnangagwa made it to the top after aligning himself with the First Lady Grace Mugabe ahead of the elective congress held in Harare last week. The new list of deputies are an indication Grace is calling the shots as she is believed to be secure with Mnangagwa taking over from Robert Mugabe. Mugabe has ruled Zimbabwe for 34 years and his party got into problems in the run-up of the Congress as factionalism gripped the Revolutionary Party. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. Chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma, says retired African leaders have a major role to play in supporting the implementation of the AU Socio-Economic Development Strategic Vision Agenda 2063. She was speaking at a gala dinner in the South African capital, Pretoria, last night, ahead of the AU consultative meeting with former heads of state and government today. The meeting is convened by the AU Commission and will focus on the contribution of the former African heads of state and government in shaping Africa's future through the implementation of Agenda 2063. Tsepo Ikaneng has more. During the African Union's 50th anniversary last year, African leaders gathered at the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa and adopted the Agenda 2063 roadmap. It embodies a renewed commitment by African leaders to achieve the Pan-African vision of integrated, prosperous and peaceful Africa. It's an attempt to ensure that Africa's future is driven by policies and programs created mainly by African institutions. It sets out to establish a credible platform on which Africa can build its future development. Various debates and consultations have been held with governments, think tanks, youth formations, women, business and political leaders, including representatives of the African diaspora. Poor infrastructure, limited intra-African trade, lack of economic diversification, low productivity levels, as well as dysfunctioning public and civil society institutions have been cited as major impediments which hinders Africa's economic development. AU Commission Chairperson Dr. Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma cites some of the challenges facing the continent. Business are also saying, why can't we just have an African passport? Which they're saying, why should we have to apply for visas when we are business people moving from one country to the other in our own continent? 
And the youth is also saying, we want to study anywhere and work anywhere in our continent where skills are needed. They want to see harmonization of curricular standards so that it doesn't matter where you studied, your degree will be recognized or your skills will be recognized in any part of the continent. Chairperson of the Forum of Former Heads of State and Government, Joachim Shisano, whose former president of Mozambique, says their forum stands ready to assist continental leaders in driving the Agenda 2063 initiative. It's a, a forum which is not established to be against any government, but a forum which wants to help the governments and the sitting leaders to try and find innovative solutions on the basis of our experiences. We wanted an opportunity to be together to compare our past experiences and try and see what should not be repeated as mistakes or even the good things which we have done we could find better ways to implement them and pass this on to the sitting heads of state. Amongst retired presidents present were former Malian president Alpha Konare, Seki Tumila Masiro of Botswana and Bakili Muluzi of Malawi, Tsepo Ikaneng in Pretoria. A series of protests by Cameroon's opposition political parties and civil society groups against a draft law which makes terrorism punishable by death have not taken place following the deployment of troops in the capital, Yaoundé. Barely two days after the law was passed by Parliament and Senate, Cameroon announced that it had started recruiting 10,000 young people into the police force to fight terrorism and increasing crime. Channel Africa's Muki Kinzega reports from Yaoundé. Armed policemen were deployed to the streets to disperse members of civil society groups and opposition political parties who heeded calls to protest the draft law defended at Senate and National Assembly by Cameroon's Minister of Justice, Laurent Esso. The draft law states that intimidating the population, provoking fear or disturbing public peace may be considered acts of terrorism. Maidadi Sedu of the National Union for Democracy and Progress, who is one of those who called for the protests, says Cameroon's president Paul Bia by using the police against innocent people simply indicated how far he is ready to crack down on the masses and remain in power when the anti-terrorism acts finally become law. Je crois qu'il n'y a pas grand chose à dire. C'est une loi qu'il faut jeter dans la poubelle. Parce qu'elle est grave et elle est très dangereuse. He says it is a law that should be sent into the trash can because it is very dangerous. He says governments want to use it to stifle the opposition and trade unions in the country in view of a political change. He says it is true and as proof he is telling the world that when the period of social incubation of a people is at its end, no law and no army can stop them. Government spokesperson and communication minister Isa Chiruma Bakari 
described all those who are calling for the law to be abolished as people who want to use the law as a pretext to press for President Paul Bia to relinquish power. Some of them have begun calling for popular uprising to realize their old dream. Cameroonians are neither naive nor foolish. No matter what sedition and macabre enterprises they may be planning in the darkness, they will always have the Cameroonian people to stand against them. Bia has ruled Cameroon for 33 years. In 2008, he changed the constitution that limited his term of office amid bloodshed. It is suspected that he has introduced the Anti-Terrorist Act to crush his opponents and stand for the 2018 presidential election. Isa Chiruma says people who are protesting that Bia should not aspire to succeed himself have a hidden agenda. The personality of their authors is a sufficient indication that their public statement could be linked to a well-oiled political timetable orchestrated by the enemy of democracy. All the 148 lawmakers of Bia's political party, the CPDM, in the 200-member National Assembly passed the bill, which was opposed by all opposition political party members. 86 of the 100 members of the Senate who are of the CPDM passed the law, which the 14 senators of the SDF political party did not vote. Cameroon's police chief, Martin Bargangele, says he has started recruiting 10,000 young Cameroonians into the police force as proposed by BIA and passed by the lawmakers. Comme je l'ai annoncé à l'Assemblée nationale, as I informed Parliament during a special session on Cameroon's security, President Paul Bia has decided that we should recruit 9,400 policemen. We shall not restrict on the official maximum age, which was 27 years. We are recruiting people who are even 30 years old. La limite auparavant était de 27 ans. Cet âge a été porté à 30 ans. The belief here is that the regime is using this law as a reaction to what happened in Burkina Faso in October when a popular uprising ousted President Blaise Kampauri, who fled the country after 28 years in power. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka. In Yawundi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa, rise and shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Since the discontinuation and dismissal of the International Criminal Court charges against President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya, foreign policy experts and scholars in international geopolitics have been meeting in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, to discuss the emerging trends in Kenya's foreign policy and what changes have taken place since Kenyatta came to power 14 months ago. Mwaiki Konyo reports from Nairobi. Since President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya assumed office 14 months ago, 
Kenya's foreign policy has gradually shifted from the traditional Western allies and has reflected an assertive new African and Oriental approach in international relations. And although there has been a lot of talk in Nairobi about economic diplomacy in the Kenyatta Jubilee government, it has not been pursued vigorously by the new administration. It has remained a mere rhetoric. And with the discontinuation of the ICC criminal charges against President Uru Kenyatta, foreign policy experts in Nairobi anticipates the drastic changes in the country's perception of Western allies. The ICC indictment against President Uru Kenyatta had greatly dented Kenyatta's relation with Western powers. But according to a Kenyan scholar in international relations, Dr. Peter Alingo, Kenyatta's administration should focus more closely on regional geopolitics in light of the regional threats and challenges that are emerging. We must be able to reconfigure our you know, uh, relations with our neighbors in terms of the regional threats and the challenges that are emerging. We must be able to ask ourselves the bigger question is, what is our interest in the region? How do we, first and foremost, preserve the national integrity and security of Kenya? Because those are, by and large, what our interests are all about. We are able to do well economically, make economic advancement, because we have a secure country. We are able to export, import goods, including services, because of a secure environment. But we can only do that if we ask ourselves that, that important question that within the East Africa region, in the context of the emerging threats, how do we as Kenya position ourselves so that we are not affected fundamentally in terms of the threats, in terms of the challenges? With emerging security risk in this country, many people in Kenya, leaders and the ordinary people, they are asking this question. Why are we facing these terrorist attacks in Kenya? And some of them are suggesting that Kenya should pull out from Somalia. Do you think this is a, a prudent uh, uh, foreign policy? I don't think that pulling out of Somalia is a prudent uh, 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 foreign policy initiative. In my view, it is not. I think we have to ask ourselves this question, that Kenya is not uh, alone in this region. Kenya is surrounded by many countries, and Kenya's prosperity, including economic development and political advancement can only happen if there is true genuine peace in the region. Conflict we know. Conflict is the antithesis of development and advancement. We must be able to uh, position Kenya as the real actor and real driver in conflict prevention and also in peace negotiation and, and peace building efforts in the region. And that is when Kenya can grow. Kenya can only grow with the region as well. Kenya cannot grow if the rest of the region remains behind. So the idea of pulling out of Somalia is in a sense saying that, look, there is a problem here which cannot be resolved and the region, including Kenya, is defeated. What does that imply? It implies that the region will not ultimately get peace. And that is what we want, an environment where there are no threats. The threat of Al-Shabaab, the threat of terrorism, is completely dealt with. And that is when we will have peace that can allow investors to come into Kenya and the region and also allow regional integration to happen and economic advancement of the region to happen. And since Kenyatta came to power over one year ago, he has visited a number of Asian countries, including China and Russia, where his predecessor never set foot. 
and has made several trips to broker peace in neighboring countries. However, some political analysts in Nairobi feel that Kenyatta and his Jubilee administration has no severe political and diplomatic ties with Western allies, despite Asian strong foothold in Kenya. They feel that Kenyatta's administration continues to perpetuate the same foreign policy that his predecessor President Kibaki put in place. Professor Edward Kisiangani of Kenyatta University. They have continued to perpetuate the same foreign policy that Kibaki put in place. And that foreign policy is based on the fact that if the West does not embrace us, we, we temporarily cut the East. But there is no drastic change because Western allies of Kenya still operate in this country without interference. But also there has been space created for the East and specifically China. It is also doing its business here. So I don't think there has been any change that you can mention, but it's just a strategy to serve certain interests. And why do you think that uh, Kenya has been leaning so much towards the east it's because the east does not especially china does not attach its financial support to kenya on certain conditions such as the condition for democracy accountability they don't ask too many questions they don't look at the dark areas the gray areas so that is the reason why the west the west has been often been accused but you know in the recent past the west has also seemingly started withdrawing those conditions it's no longer asking too many questions of accountability it's no longer asking too many questions of democracy it is the, the west has been doing business with countries that don't even support democracy so really the west is almost at bar par with the with, with, with the east in terms of dealing with the with with, with countries in africa and and, and and parts of asia so the question of accountability is no longer a big 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 story but according to scholars and experts attending the seminar kenya's foreign policy is defined on the basis of national self-interest and the preservation of those in power. I think Kenya's foreign policy is defined on the basis of national self-interest uh, that we see playing out. And we see foreign policy being driven and designed and uh, implemented by those in power. I think foreign policy is about the preservation of the self-interest of those in power, the ruling elite. By and large, they define, their interests define how they relate because it's about uh, political relations, it's about commercial relations, it's about trade, it's about many, many things that require relationship with uh, the neighboring countries within the East Africa region, within the Africa region, and beyond Africa region. Participants at the one-day seminar discussed changes that have taken place in the country's foreign policy under the Kenyatta administration and the role of geopolitics in the region. The seminar was organized by the African Institute of Security Studies. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. It's 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The International Organization for Migration, IOM, says it is concerned about the details of at least three fatal migrant shipwrecks off Africa since December the 5th. It was initially reported out of Yemen last Sunday that 70 migrants died when their boat capsized in rough weather off the coast of Taiyez governorate near Bab al-Mandeb Strait. Selina Dobong has more. 
The International Organization for Migration figures show that this year over 3,200 migrants have been recorded as missing or presumed drowned on voyages between Africa and Europe. This is in addition to the 250 migrant deaths that have been recorded on sea routes connecting Africa to the Arabian Peninsula. The IOM says the latest reports of as many as 100 migrants losing their lives of the African coasts near Spain, Italy and Yemen demonstrate how winter's approach has not significantly curbed the number of migrants seeking safety nor altered the lethal nature of many of these voyages. It also says it is concerned about the often sketchy details of these incidents. The organization's spokesperson, Christiane Bethume. There are these migrants, people that are fleeing war, conflict, extreme poverty or hunger, are taking very, very dangerous ways by boat, by road, sometimes through the desert. Uh, in the case of those that happened during the weekend, those were people that were fleeing through uh, the Gulf of Yemen and also through the Mediterranean. I mean, through the Gulf of Yemen, mostly Ethiopians, and they were trying to reach uh, Saudi Arabia. And those who, who fled through the Mediterranean Sea were trying to reach Europe. And the thing, the drama is that there are more and more people that are taking those dangerous roads, and they're losing their lives. I mean, 2014 is going to be, unfortunately, a, a record this year. I mean, there's going to be more than 5,000 people that would have lost their life worldwide trying to find a better life for them and their family. The IOM has made renewed calls for the strengthening and capacity building of regional and national law enforcement institutions around the world. The organization, however, says despite these challenges, there's organizations that have pulled up their songs. There is right now a very important conference that has been held in Geneva with uh, the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, with IOM, also with the United Nations Organization for Maritime, many plus member states, plus countries, to, it's a conference called by UNHCR for the protection of migrants at sea. And this is right now in Geneva, where IOM is calling for three things, three very, very, very important things. The first one is Save lives. The second one is track the smugglers. And three, find solutions. There's been this incredible and fantastic rescue operation that the Italian has been undergoing since the beginning of the year, which is called Mare Nostro. They saved thousands of lives thanks to them and thanks to the uh, Italian Marines. Bethune says there hasn't been much success in identifying and persecuting human smugglers. So much more has to be done. You know, think about it. Plane uh, from Malaysia Airlines crash into the sea. There's been thousands, many hundreds of people who have tried to find what happened to that plane uh, where, and to find the passengers. Has the same thing been done for migrants that have lost their lives at sea? No. You know, there is not enough. There is not a consensus, there is not a joint effort to save the lives 
and to and to track those smugglers. And the first thing that has to be done by the government is to decriminalize the migrants. Migrants are not criminal. They are irregular person, but they're not illegal migrants, they're irregular migrants. And so that would be very important to decriminalize the fact that they arrive in a country without the proper papers, so that if if this happens, they will talk, they will say what happened, who are those smugglers, who, you know, proposed them to do this trip. You know, they are all over the place on the web. They propose their services on internet. I mean, this is incredible. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ntobong. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. New Zimbabwean Vice President Emerson Nangagwe's secretary is in a critical condition in a Harare hospital after cyanide was reportedly sprayed into his office. A Chadian rebel leader and former official of the Central African Republic has been detained. And two female suicide bombers have killed at least four people at a busy market in northern Nigeria's largest city, Kanu. And that's the stories making headlines this hour. Thank you, Anne. Fighting for human rights is a daily duty that we can never give up, according to the Deputy Secretary-General of the United Nations. Jan Eliasson was at the Skomberg Center for Research and Black Culture located in Harlem, New York, where he spoke at an event to mark Human Rights Day yesterday. The UN also launched the International Decade for People of African Descent to promote respect and protection of the fundamental freedoms and rights of people with African ties. UN Radio's Priscilla Lecomte spoke with Eliasin and first asked why it is important to support this community. Well, the reason why we observe the people of African descent is that there is a pattern of discrimination and not being part of the mainstream of society in so many countries. And therefore, uh, to have a whole decade of marking this is extremely important. Starting in this country, the horrible slave trade from West Africa to the United States, and by that, creating a situation with racial discrimination for many, many years, with some remnants still noticeable today. But it is a global phenomenon, and I think it's important that we do our duty. I'm also very glad that the United Nations is setting up a memorial to remind the world about the slave trade and what that meant in terms of injustices for a very particular segment of the population. You spoke about the United States in your speech and you also mentioned the recent protests occurring after the Ferguson affair. Chief Said of the Human Rights Office said that there was a disproportionate amount of African people that are being in jail or in custody. What's the position of the United Nations and what's your opinion about this? Well, of course, I stand fully behind what the Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has stated on these issues, but also on what my colleague and friend Said Hussein, Human Rights Commissioner, has made mention of. I think it is obvious 
to also many, many Americans that there are problems to be dealt with. And I hope, like in any democratic society, there will be a discussion, a public discussion on these issues. I think it's very healthy that such a discussion takes place. I suppose that it is also for many painful to go through this, but I think it is important that we deal with these issues, face up to them, but also do it in a spirit of dialogue, of respecting the right of assembly peacefully, and of course also the important aspect that demonstrations should take place in a peaceful manner. And here the civil rights movement in the United States has a great tradition going back to many, many years, but in my life, as I recall myself, Martin Luther King and the marches in the early 60s when I was a student, and I still have a picture of Martin Luther King in my office where he has the U.S. flag behind him and the United Nations flag at the side, reminding me that this is not only a national issue, human rights, but it is an international issue. So I think Martin Luther King set the example of nonviolent demonstrations and peaceful change. So you said this is an international issue, and more globally, we are now 60 years after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Do you think, from your point of view, that there have been progress in human rights, promotion and protection, or the contrary? There have been both great progress, no doubt, but there has also been setbacks and there are very slow developments. When we in this room today heard 30 voices reading the articles, I said to myself, in this case, yes, in other case, no, we haven't done enough. It's work in progress and we can never give up. Fighting for human rights is a daily duty, almost hourly duty, to live up to these basic principles of every human being's equal value and a right to a life of dignity. This is what it's all about. And for me, this summarizes also the work of the United Nations. We have to stand up for peace and security, for development, but we also, all the time, at the same time, have to stand up for human rights and the rule of law. And if one of these pillars of the United Nations is weak, the whole structure is weak. That was exactly my last question. We just say that this is about three pillars, right? But very often people say that the pillar of human rights is a bit weak because it lacks maybe funding or attention. What do you think about it? It is correct. The human rights pillar takes up about 3% of our budget. Of course, we know that peace and security with all the huge peacekeeping operations need a lot of resources. We also know that development certainly needs enormous amount of resources. But still, human rights needs to have more of the total budget. And above all, I would hope that the member states will realize that the work on human rights is a core activity and should be part of the regular budget. Right now, most of the operations and our work in human rights are financed by extra budgetary resources. And I certainly consider human rights a core activity, and I hope the member states will draw the consequences of that. And that was Jan Eliasson, the Deputy Secretary-General of the United Nations, talking to UN Radio's Priscilla Lecom. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.39 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The state is grant has granted leave to appeal against Australia.
Oscar Pistorius' acquittal on murder, but not against his sentence of his acquittal on the unlawful possession of ammunition. Judge Togozile Masipa told the High Court in Pretoria yesterday that there are some questions of law the Supreme Court of Appeal must give clarity on. Pistorius was found guilty of culpable homicide after shooting his girlfriend Riva Stienkamp on Valentine's Day last year, and he was also found guilty for the unlawful discharge of a firearm after a shot went off in the Tasha's restaurant in January 2013. Lila Machnas reports. Judge Tukuzile Masipa started a judgment saying she will not entertain the opinion of the public or that of Riva Stienkamp's family. While I agree that a sentence imposed should do justice, not only to the community, but also to the parents of the deceased, in brackets CR versus Karch, It seems to me that once a court has correctly exercised its discretion in imposing a sentence, the views of the public about the appropriateness or otherwise of the sentence are immaterial and they cannot influence the outcome of an application for leave to appeal. She dismissed the state's application for leave to appeal against Pistorius' sentence of five years in jail that can be commuted to correctional supervision after 10 months. I am not persuaded that there was any material misdirection or irregularity or that on the facts of this matter, the sentence imposed is shockingly inappropriate and induces a sense of shock. The application in terms of Section 31B, 316, capital B, subsection 1, therefore, cannot succeed. Masipa also dismissed the application for leave to appeal against the acquittal on the charge of the unlawful possession of ammunition. She, however, granted the application for the state to appeal the acquittal on the murder charge. Having perused the application in brackets, especially inter alia paragraphs 12, 13 and 23, close brackets, and case law referred to, I have been persuaded that the questions in respect of count one as set out by the applicant applicant are questions of law. That being so, I cannot say, after considering submissions by counsel, that the prospect of success at the Supreme Court of Appeal is remote. I am also of the view that if the points succeed, this might have a a practical effect on the conviction. She told the court there are some questions of law that the Supreme Court of Appeal must clear up. The following questions of law are reserved for the consideration of the Supreme Court of Appeal. One, whether the principles of dolus eventualis were correctly applied to the accepted facts and the conduct of the accused, including error in objector. Two, whether the court correctly conceived and applied the legal principles pertaining to circumstantial evidence and or pertaining to multiple defenses by an accused. Three, whether the court was correct in its construction and reliance on an alternative version of the accused and that this alternative version was reasonably possibly true. Spokesperson for the National Prosecuting Authority, Nadine Klube, says they are satisfied with the ruling. 
You know, we welcome, of course, the outcome uh, this morning. Uh, this is what we wanted. And of course, as we all, always said, you know, from the time when we indicated that we were going to appeal the matter, or the matter that, uh, you know, the issues that we wanted clarified and that we feel that need to be clarified by the Supreme Court of Appeal are the issues of law. He says they will consider if they will petition the Supreme Court of Appeal to appeal against the sentence and the acquittal of the gun-related charge. Ube says it is in the interest of Pistorius that the matter be expedited. It does take at least a year. We're not going to try and put pressure on the Supreme Court of Appeal to, to do what we wish and, and, and try and to circumvent the processes. So our, you know, our hands are tight in this matter. If the Supreme Court overturns the conviction of culpable homicide and change it to murder, the state will ask for a sentence of 15 years. Criminal law expert Llewellyn Kalouis says there is a possibility that Pistorius's sentence might have been converted to correctional supervision by the time the case is heard in the appeals court. There is obviously always the uh, uh, possibility that the Supreme Court of Appeal might set aside the conviction on culpable homicide uh, and obviously substitute that with the murder conviction, in which event they will then uh, be at liberty to reimpose a new sentence, uh, basically on par with what happened in the J. Arthur Brown matter. Three or five judges will hear the matter in the appeals court. I am Leila Magnus in Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. South Africa's power utility, Eskom, says the risk for load shedding today is low. It is, however, not clear what the situation will be like tomorrow and over the weekend since the electricity grid remains under pressure. The country has been hit by regular rolling blackouts for several weeks due to limited generating capacity and several problems that have occurred at existing power plants. Eskom spokesperson Andrew Ettinger. Things are looking good. Uh, some generators came back into service during the course of uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, this has meant that we've managed to preserve some of our emergency reserves, which will be used today. So at this stage, uh, a very low risk of load shedding. We're going to take this situation one day at a time. So we'll make a call on the outlook on Friday as well as on the weekend uh, later today. But at this stage, things are, are looking positive. Nestle will announce the plans to open 10 skincare research centers worldwide, deepening its investment in a faster-growing market for healthcare products. The Swiss company, known globally for its chocolate bars, baby food and coffee, signaled a heightened interest in skincare earlier this year. It spent $5.7 billion for the rights to some injectable wrinkle treatment of the Valiant Pharmaceuticals for L'Oreal's share of a dermatology joint venture, which is too operated. Chief Executive of Nestle Skincare, Humberto Atunas, says Nestle is also spending about $350 million on dermatology research and development this year. 
South Africa's headline consumer price inflation CPI rate for November was slightly lower at 5.8% compared to the previous month of 5.9%. On average, prices were unchanged between October and November 2014. The Food and Non-Alcoholic Beverages Annual Index decreased to 7.6% in November from 7.8% in October. Zimbabwe has received $108 million as a grant from the African Development Bank to improve electricity and water supplies in the country. Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa says the money would be used to repair the Kariba Dam, which generates most of the country's power, and to fix electricity transmission lines. Water supplies in the second largest city of Bulawayo and a smaller town would also be improved. The southern African country owes the foreign creditors like the FDB, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, $9 billion, which has prevented it from accessing fresh loans required to rebuild roads, schools and hospitals. The world faces prospects of massive job losses as human workers are increasingly replaced by computer-based automation and robots. This was the crucial point raised at the UNI Global Union World Congress in South Africa's mother city of Cape Town in debates on the future of leadership and the world of work. A number of delegates mentioned how jobs were being lost to automation and machines. Workers in some sectors were being forced into retirement. This was... uh, A world that was volatile and insecure and workers and their unions should be planning ahead now to cope with this new world of work. Indicators at this hour on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The US dollar trades at 11.52 South African Rand, 9.43 Botswana Pula, 6.32 in Zambia, 0.64 British Pound, 0.81 across the Eurozone, Gold $1228, Platinum $1242 an ounce, Brand Crude $64.83 a barrel. Economic Update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. The world's governing body of athletics, RAAF, has issued another lengthy statement in response to more claims of widespread doping and cover-ups, saying the latest allegations have been passed to its ethics committee for investigation. German broadcaster ARD, which has already made claims of systematic doping in Russia, broadcast another program on Monday, including allegations that positive tests and blood level anomalies from Athletes across several nations are covered up or not investigated. The statement also addressed specific allegations relating to the period of 2006 and 2009. On Monday, Sebastian Coe bidding to become president of the IAAF and an outspoken campaigner against doping says this sport is seeing very difficult times. On to football news, Nigerian international John Ogu says he was disappointed when the Super Eagles failed to pick up a ticket to next year's Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Equatorial Guinea. 
Ogu, who has been in fine form for his Israeli side, Hapuel Beye Sheve, the season was part of the Nigerian squad to the 2013 Confederations Cup, but missed out on the 2014 World Cup train as Nigeria exited in the second round. The 26-year-old, who has not been called up since then, says he was heartbroken when the team draw 2 all with South Africa, which effectively ended Nigeria's hopes after Congo won away at Sudan in the penultimate Group A match on the day. Kosovo is, has been granted full International Olympic Committee membership, paving the way for the Balkan region's first Games appearance at the Rio de Janeiro Olympics in 2016. The ROC says it started reviewing the Kosovo file five years ago, a year after the region declared independence from Serbia in 2008. This comes almost a decade after NATO went to war to halt the massacre and expulsion of Albanians by Serbia forces waging a two-year counterinsurgency under late strongman Sobadan Malezovic. Speaking to reporters at the end of the ROC Congress in Monte Carlo, the ROC President Thomas Bach acknowledged the president of Serbia's National Olympic Committee, Valde Devak, was not pleased with the decision. Well, first of all, there was no formal protest. Uh, the, uh, we have been in consultation with the Serbian National Olympic Committee uh, all the time and uh, with other uh, concerned uh, uh, countries. And uh, the, the Serbian NOC and then the president uh, expressed uh, that uh, he's uh, not happy uh, with uh, the decision, but uh, that he accepts it. Uh, in the interest uh, of uh, the, the the athletes. Asked about a potential clash of dates with the 2022 Winter Olympics, if the FIFA World Cup moves to the beginning of the year to avoid the summer in Qatar, Bach reiterated that there will be a compromise to avoid that the two events happen at the same time. We have uh, the uh, firm commitment of uh, President Plata uh, of FIFA uh, that... Uh, in the mutual interest of uh, FIFA and uh, the IOC and in the interest of uh, uh, the players and uh, the Olympic athletes uh, that uh, there will be uh, no clash uh, of, uh, these, uh, of the dates of uh, these uh, two uh, events. And since uh, we have uh, this uh, firm commitment, uh, there was no reason to raise uh, this uh, issue here and now. On to cycling news, the 2016 Tour de France director Christian Prudhomme says the tour will begin in the Normandy region with the grand depart from the iconic Mont Saint-Michel and a third stage start from Hanville. Prudhomme says the whole route will be unveiled next year in October. Uh, it's it's part of the whole heritage Mont Saint-Michel, and, and it, the new Mont Saint-Michel will be at it was. Uh, centuries ago uh, in, in one year because uh, it will be possible for the, the sea and the water to, to, to go up to the, to the Mont. So uh, it, will be, it will be something very, very special for a Grand Depart. You know, the first images you have from a Grand Depart are very, very important because that's the reason why you, you, you watch on TV for the three weeks after. So uh, uh, yes, it, 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 it's very important to have uh, monuments uh, that are uh, most important than the tour. Um, and a start from here, just magnificent. 
And finally, in golf news, the final tournament of the 2014 is held at a very special place in South Africa, the Leopard Creek Country, the Leopard Creek Country Club. The state sits on the border of the Kruger National Park, and its name has become synonymous with golf on the wild side. Louis Ostazen is excited about his time in the bushveld, but his focus for the week is on contending at the Alfred Downhill Championship, which tees off this morning. Yeah, I mean, it'll be nice. Uh, yeah, it'll be a nice feat to accomplish, but uh, it's just nice to be back here at Leopard Creek. You know, it's, it's a place that's treated me very well over the years, and uh, um, it does seem to do something to my game, so I'm really sort of hoping that that's the case this time around again. Well, those are your sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour, President Robert Mugabe appoints Emerson Mnangangwa as his deputy and Cameroon police quash planned protests against new anti-terror law. That wraps up Africa Raz and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzura Magaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our for the news, on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa is Tandiswa with a track titled Ingoma.
a relentless song and the naked Ingoma and the tangle and the nina Goma when I wang in a pool